0: The National Archives podcast series, new files from 1979. This release of high-profile records from 1979 has been the result of a collective effort between the National Archives and key government departments and includes over 1,500 files from Number 10, Cabinet Office and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. These 1979 files provide a fascinating insight into government 30 years ago and by increasing our understanding of the past we see many reoccurring themes, for example the economic crisis, cuts to civil service and trade union strikes. The National Archives key role is to work with government departments to manage their information from the moment it's created to its transfer and release into the public domain and to preserve it for future generations. The remarkable stories of 1979 we've discovered are a testament to this work and a selection of files are available to download for free on our website until the end of January 2010. Here's Mark Dunton, Contemporary Records Specialist, to explain more.
1: 1979 is a significant year in modern British history for two main reasons. The winter of discontent and the coming to power of the Conservative Party led by Margaret Thatcher whose premiership would last for 11 years. In the winter of 1978 to 79, a series of strikes occurred. They were invariably about pay increases, and they conflicted with the policy of James Callaghan's government, which was to try to keep pay rises below 5% in order to control inflation. From the 3rd of January 1979, an unofficial strike of the Transport and General Workers Union, the TGWU, lorry drivers began. And on 11th of January, this strike was made official. This was a major problem for the government. A Prime Minister's office file about the road haulage dispute shows the extent of the difficulties. Striking drivers picketed the firms that continued to work, a practice known as secondary picketing. There was much concern that essential supplies, including oil and supply of food to the shops, would be put in danger. Troops were put on standby to take over the driving of the lorries and the government was on the verge of declaring a state of emergency. On the 17th of January, the file records that the PM asked Merlin Rees, the Home Secretary, to make sure that the troops were ready to move, if necessary, tomorrow. The document shows that Jim Callaghan was gravely concerned. At a meeting with Len Murray, General Secretary of the TUC, and Moss Evans, leader of the TGWU, his concern is expressed thus. The Prime Minister reflected that the Labour Party and the trade union movement were in worse disarray than at any time since the general strike. Mr Evans and Mr Murray said they agreed with this. The government's problems were compounded by strikes by the public sector unions, including railway workers and ambulance drivers and hospital workers. Many employees of local authorities took strike action. Sometimes this was unofficial action. By the end of February '79, the crisis was generally over, but it had been politically damaging for the government, and Callaghan acknowledges this in the records. He is reported as saying that, quote, the government's political weakness was that Mrs Thatcher would concentrate on the issue of secondary picketing, not inflation or pay policy, and, he said, the consequences were fearsome. Another file is revealing about Jim Callaghan's mood at this time. The main focus of this file concerns arrangements for the British military withdrawal from Malta on the 31st of March seventy-nine and it includes a transcript of a telephone conversation with Malta's Prime Minister, Dom Mintoff, on the 6th of March. And this is both poignant and candid. Mr Mintoff encourages Jim Callaghan to come out to Malta in uh, April, perhaps May, on an official visit. Jim Callaghan responds, I might not be PM then. There are several comments that the PM makes which imply that his mood is rather depressed. For example, PM, we're really in trouble at the moment. Mr Mintoff, you have pulled this off before. PM, yes, I know, but there comes a limit to what you can do, you know. Jim Callahan also explains that he is reluctant to visit Malta as to leave Britain on a foreign visit at this time might be used against him politically. And also, interestingly, he reveals that, in a sense... He will find it difficult to witness the end of an era with Britain's military withdrawal from Malta, particularly given his own past involvement. He says, I am rather nostalgic about it. I sailed into Malta during the war. It's a fascinating record, which gives real insights into Jim Callaghan, the man. On March 28th, the Conservatives' motion of no confidence in the government was passed, by 311 votes to 310, and a general election was declared, which was held on May the 3rd. The Conservatives, under Margaret Thatcher, won a comfortable majority. The government came to power determined to roll back the state and to cut public expenditure. One of the newly released files gives an insight into Margaret Thatcher's forthright style and her determination to implement the new approach. It's all about a freeze on civil service recruitment, and action to reduce the size of the civil service. On a draft paper for Cabinet by the Lord President, Christopher Soames, we see comments by Mrs Thatcher in the margins made by her own hand. These comments are very direct. Why? And to one particular suggestion on recruitment, she writes simply, No! When Christopher Soames suggests a reduction of civil service staff cost of 3%, Mrs Thatcher writes, too small, and puts 5% as agreed. But the file also reveals how this policy ran into difficulties. The opposition to deep cuts coming from her government's own ministers. Geoffrey Howe, Chancellor of the Exchequer, argues that he needs a good level of staffing to collect tax revenues. And Frances Pym, Secretary of State for Defence, argues that defence has already borne the brunt of cuts recently and should not suffer further significant cuts. Mrs Thatcher continued to press for reductions. As mentioned, Margaret Thatcher brought a new, forthright style to the Premiership and as Britain's first female Prime Minister, she was determined to be treated as an equal in the male-dominated world of politics. And this applied to the international stage as well as the domestic one, as we see from a file concerning the Tokyo Economic Summit. Here we see reactions to a Japanese report that when Mrs Thatcher attended this economic summit, scheduled for June '79, 20 karate ladies would attend her. The Cabinet Secretary, Sir John Hunt, made it clear that Mrs Thatcher wanted no special treatment. Sir John said that Mrs Thatcher will attend the summit as prime minister, and not as a woman per se, and he was sure that she would not want these ladies. The memo goes on. If other delegation leaders are, for example, being assigned 20 karate gentlemen, the prime minister would have no objection to this, but she does not wish to be singled out. One of the most significant events of the year internationally was the Iranian Revolution. January 79 saw the Shah forced to leave Iran after widespread demonstrations and strikes. On the 1st of February, Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Iran following 14 years of exile and he proceeded to establish an Islamic Republic. Several files have been released about the situation in Iran and the implications of the revolution. These files include some interesting revelations about the Shah's search for refuge and Britain's involvement in this aspect. Through intermediaries, it becomes clear that the Shah would like to seek refuge in Britain. He has an estate which he wants to return to, and the British government do find this a very difficult issue to wrestle with. Jim Callahan's comments are not unsympathetic to the Shah's plight, but on the other hand, he is being heavily influenced by real politic considerations. And so Jim Callahan writes... I dislike giving the Shah a rebuff on humanitarian grounds, but he is an intensely controversial figure in Iran, and we must consider our future with that country. Would it be possible to wait a while and see how the new government settles down, and then we can approach them for their reactions? They know he must live somewhere, and it could be a matter for discussion between the new Iranian government and ourselves. But we can't approach them for some time yet. He will need to make interim arrangements. The Shah found this, of course, a very difficult time as several countries shut their doors to him and by April 1979, he arrived in the Bahamas and a secret mission was sent by the British to speak with the Shah and explain the reasons why it would be difficult for the Shah to enter the UK and to seek permanent residence there. So these files do show us many interesting aspects to do with the Iranian Revolution in that year. This podcast was recorded on the
0: 21st of December 2009 at the National Archives. This podcast is copyright, all rights reserved. For more podcasts, please see our website at www.nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash podcasts.